It's time to start running! On your marks! Get set! Killian, I'll be back. Only in a rerun. Hi, welcome to Around the World in 80s Movies. My name is Vince Leo. I am the author of the film review website, Quipster.net. I've been doing film reviews since the middle of the 1990s. You can read all of my written work. Quipster.net is where to go. Q-W-I-P-S-T-E-R.net. Speaking of the 1990s, I also do another podcast that covers films of the 1990s. It's called To the 90s and Beyond, which covers not only films of that decade, but also newer films based on those films, sequels and spinoffs and whatnot. Find the link at quipster.net. Today, I'm going to be getting into the second part of this three-part look at films from the 1980s in which cops get framed for murder. Last episode, we looked at Action Jackson. This episode, going off of Carl Weathers' co-star from Predator, Arnold Schwarzenegger, for a science fiction action film called The Running Man. Running Man came out in 1987. It is an R-rated film. It does have strong, pervasive violence and language. The runtime is an hour and 41 minutes. As I mentioned, Arnold Schwarzenegger is the star with sizable supporting roles going to Richard Dawson, Maria Conchita Alonso, Jesse Ventura. We also have Yafa Kato, Jim Brown, Erlen Von Lith, Gus Rethwish, Toru Tanaka, Mick Fleetwood, Dweezil Zappa, and Kurt Fuller are also in the movie. The director of The Running Man is credited to Paul Michael Glazer. The screenplay credited to Stephen E. D'Souza. Now, as far as the origin of The Running Man, a lot of people today discuss The Running Man as a Stephen King story. And Stephen King was the author of the original Running Man novel or novella, if you prefer, but between the years 1977 and 1985, Stephen King published five novels under a pseudonym, the pseudonym of Richard Bachman. Four of these novels were reworked from manuscript that Stephen King had written while he was in high school and college during the 1960s, and he found them languishing in a trunk, and he felt that they should be published. But King's publisher, because they were concerned about oversaturating the market, and Stephen King was a very prolific writer, Stephen King was limited to publishing no more than two books annually. So he decided to publish these works elsewhere using a pseudonym. Now, associates from Stephen King's youth protected his secret that he was Richard Bachman, but suspicions did emerge due to Bachman dedicating a couple of books to his former teachers. Certain libraries cataloged Bachman's works under King's name, including Stephen King's alma mater at University of Maine. King ended up eventually going public in 1985 after he received notification from this bookstore employee who had concrete proof that he was Richard Bachman and it was going to be divulged to the media. Public demand for Bachman's out-of-print novels immediately skyrocketed upon news of Stephen King using a pseudonym for those novels. Eventually, those first four books would get repackaged into this 1985 omnibus called the Bachman Books, to which Stephen King included an introduction of him explaining why he used his pseudonym. 
Now, despite low popularity at the time when people didn't know it was Stephen King, two of Bachman's books were optioned to make into movies, and those included 1979's The Long Walk and 1982's The Running Man. I'm only going to concentrate on that one for this review. The plot of Stephen King's version of The Running Man includes this nationally televised American game show in the dystopian year of 2025, professional hitmen hunt a contestant known as the running man and every hour the running man remains in the game he receives a hundred dollars and if he survives 30 days he receives a billion and viewers are offered cash and notoriety for reporting the running man's whereabouts and unbeknownst to everybody pretty much except for the people who are behind the show the game is pretty much rigged nobody has really survived much more than a week the protagonist of the Stephen King story is Ben Richards, who happens to be this brash and vulgar and jobless social misfit. He's in the competition specifically to pay for his ailing daughter's medical treatment. His wife is a prostitute, and, and he's pretty much destitute. So desperate, Richards breaks the game's rules and starts becoming an audience favorite. Ratings begin soaring for The Running Man. Richards becomes kind of an icon, and he eventually is tapped by this social activist con man named Bradley, who plans to raise the public consciousness about the rigged game by helping Richards win. More to the story than that, but because we're discussing the movie primarily, I won't get into the nuts and bolts of it unless I have to. Now, the rights for Stephen King's The Running Man were acquired by this lightweight wheelchair manufacturer named George Linder. And Linder bought the novel. He was in an airport during a layover, and he went into their bookstore, and he decided to pick it up on, the, on a whim. And as he read it, he thought this is something that he felt would make for a, an exciting movie, maybe like a, a futuristic take on Spartacus. Linder decided to see who had the rights and discovered nobody did, so he decided to try to option it to make into a film. And the asking price, he felt, it seemed a little high, given that there was an unknown, pretty much, author here with a very low circulation print run of less than 100,000 copies. But Linder did feel very strongly about the possibility of this being a movie, so he worked to secure the option for $20,000, and he would give an additional $100,000 if it actually went into film production. Now, Linder, once he had the option, he wrote a story treatment himself, but he enlisted help from two friends, Christopher Cosby and Mel Friedman, to help them flesh out a screenplay. And they worked over weekends, over the course of about nine months. Now, being Linder's first foray into films, he found shopping the script once it was completed around Hollywood pretty challenging for somebody who didn't have an in. He had to deal with so many agents and studio execs and distributors and financiers. He had a background in, in business, so he kind of knew how to hustle. But it wasn't until word got out that Bachman was Stephen King that he found they were starting to knock on his door. Linder compared the experience of finding out Bachman was King to finding a Rembrandt while he was shopping at Kmart. In mid-1985, he decided to go into a deal with producers Rob Cohen and Keith Barish of Taft Barish Productions. Taft Barish had just landed a 10-picture deal with Trimark, and they were eagerly looking for projects to fill up those 10 movies, and a crown jewel, they felt, was going to be The Running Man. They viewed it as an appealing blend of Metropolis and The Most Dangerous Game and this Italian flick called The Tenth Victim, which itself was based on this Robert Sheckley short story called Seventh Victim. But Taft Barish mostly had been expecting that they would capitalize on using Stephen King's name in the advertising. And Linder decided he wanted to stay involved. 
he would become the line producer as part of the deal while Cosby and Friedman, they really didn't get screenplay credit, but they took that experience and decided to write other films, including the script for eventually the Jean-Claude Van Damme flick called Bloodsport a couple of years later. Taft Barish hired several professional screenwriters to come in and, and fix all of the amateurish bleakness of this Linder screenplay. Linder had essentially just transcribed the book into a script form. Nothing really seemed satisfactory, even with all of these professional screenwriters, until the work of Stephen E. D'Souza, who came at the recommendation of Rob Cohen's friend Joel Silver. D'Souza determined that they really should try to make totalitarianism here entertaining instead of this dour and depressing story like the novel. Nobody was going to have a good time watching a straight adaptation. He decided he would take this Spartacus premise and push it into a broad populist direction. D'Souza quipped that Stephen King's book really should have been called The Hiding Man. The characters seemed mostly to avoid confrontations, and that would be pretty boring to watch. King's idea also of a game show, as well as this having this bleak and moody tone, seemed much more of a product of when it was written back in the 1960s instead of the 1980s, where glitzy and cheery consumerism was running rampant. D'Souza suggested that they incorporate this futuristic show and make it much more outrageous than anything you might currently find on television. And he emphasized here a, a livelier tone, he wanted more hints of romance, and especially, if they could do it, do a happy ending. D'Souza signed a two-picture contract with Taft Barish, and he received from them the green light to revamp the entire script, except he had to keep the title and premise, but everything else was fair game. Linder stayed involved, as I mentioned, and he brought on co-producer John Veitch, and together they secured the, a, a director, Canadian director George P. Cosmatos. He happened to come fresh from post-production on Rambo First Blood Part Two, and for the star, they avidly pursued initially Mel Gibson as well as Patrick Swayze to play Ben Richards. Gibson would, in the course of this, pass on playing Richards twice, the first time he left to, so that he could do the bounty, and then a little bit later when he was pursued, he decided he would rather do Mrs. Sofal instead. It didn't work out with Swayze either, so eventually they ran down the list and secured Christopher Reeve. Daryl Hannah was going to be slated to be his love interest. She would end up being the uh, secret activist that is going to use Richards to uh, promote the evils of the game. They initially wanted to film on Vancouver Island, but that would prove too expensive, so instead they opted for Alberta in Canada, where Cosmatos had spotted the, the West Edmonton Mall while he was promoting Rambo 2 there. He felt that uh, this mall could represent the domed city where wealthy citizens resided, while peasants like Richards and others, most of the populace, lived outside. When production costs began escalating under Cosmatos's tenure, their creative differences grew between the producers and the director to an impasse. Cosmatos, whose Rambo 2 in the meantime had been released and it was completely dominating the box office in the United States as well as many parts of the world, he decided he was going to use some leverage here with his major success to try to insist on upping the scale of uh, The Running Man. He wanted more elaborate effects. He wanted this Blade Runner-esque production design. He also wanted to amplify a lot of the death and destruction sequences that had Richards doing such things as fighting enemies like Rambo on a river raft. Essentially, he wanted to, to turn The Running Man into a Rambo-esque story, stick with what works. 
He wanted to also bring in a lot of allegorical qualities to the film to and kind of elevate the story in a way that was somber yet meaningful. Now, Rob Cohen, who had just read Stephen Bach's memoir on the debacle for the uh, 1980 movie Heaven's Gate called Final Cut, he began worrying because a lot of what was going on with The Running Man seemed to be suffering a similar fate to what happened with Heaven's Gate. So the producers started pushing back on some of these costly demands from Cosmatos. They pressed him to abandon his Canadian shopping mall for California locations that were within driving distance of the studio. Unfortunately, Cosmatos grew increasingly belligerent and uncooperative. He touted that he was just in too high demand at all the major studios now to delay further. He had already committed to doing another film directly following the scheduled production of The Running Man, so they really didn't have time to dilly-dally. Reeve, to get this movie moving forward, because he had other commitments as well, he backed up Cosmatos in this pressure campaign, even though he acknowledged he did have like the producer's uncertainty about Cosmatos' abilities to deliver what he said he was going to. And the producers rationalized that despite Rambo 2's financial success, Cosmatos wasn't really as talented a visionary as he touted to entrust Final Cut rights over all of their established concepts. So despite spending $700,000 already in pre-production, they fired Cosmatos and decided to begin completely from scratch Christopher Reeve and co-producer Veitch also left along with him in the process. So the production team then pressed to secure Linder's initial suggestion of Arnold Schwarzenegger to be the star. Schwarzenegger's box office appeal was on the rise. He was skyrocketing at the time. And D'Souza had a rapport with Schwarzenegger. They had worked together on Commando. And so he approached Schwarzenegger with the Running Man script while he was out making Raw Deal for Dino De Laurentiis. Schwarzenegger happened to already be aware of the Running Man property. He actually read the Bachman book at the time. He thought that would be something that would be very interesting to portray. He favored stories where one man would be going against the odds to take down a corrupt system. He thought that would be perfect for him, but he didn't pursue it when he finally heard that it was being made into a movie because by that time it was already in development and Christopher Reeve was slated as the star. He felt it was a missed opportunity there, but he was very interested now that it was available again. So he met with the producers. Eventually, he accepted a $3 million salary along with director and screenplay approval rights, slotted to be his next project after completing Predator. Now, even though Arnold Schwarzenegger was amenable to the book's ending, where Richards sacrifices himself by crashing an airplane into the TV games building, he did acknowledge that D'Souza's new direction, the pure entertainment agenda, which would remove a lot of the unsavory parts of the story, like the ailing daughter and the prostitute wife and the hero's death, that would at least avoid some kind of unintended bad word of mouth from audiences who might be walking out of the movie theater feeling depressed. Meanwhile, D'Souza started tailoring the script specifically to Schwarzenegger as he did with Commando. He tried to stick with dialogue he felt that Schwarzenegger could deliver, which was especially important because when it was Christopher Reeve, he was writing it for this very serious stage actor who was capable of expression through verbose philosophical musings. Schwarzenegger was not like that. He expressed himself much more through action. He spoke only when necessary, except for you know these trademark comic relief quips that he had become known for after Commando. D'Souza also happened to believe in the adage that every good story needs a good villain. And the book, which had a lot of rules as far as the game goes, 
didn't have any concrete antagonists for us to jeer. And Schwarzenegger, being kind of a larger-than-life presence, a, a big movie action hero, he needed equally formidable villains to battle for us to be engaged. So D'Souza decided to combine two of the novel's characters, this jerkwad games authority head known as Dan Killian, and the TV host for the game show for The Running Man, Bobby Thompson, they would be combined into one detestable character named Damon Killian. Rob Cohen's sister happened to be the casting director for The Running Man, Jackie Birch. She suggested that uh, they get game show host and veteran actor Richard Dawson to play Damon Killian because Dawson exuded the, the, the kind of charisma, the, the insincerity, and the theatricality as a former actor necessary for the part. Keith Barish concurred. He actually, when he was reading the script, he envisioned Richard Dawson as the uh, the game show host. But Dawson was not really kind of a physical match to fight toe-to-toe with Schwarzenegger, especially during the action scenes. So they decided to turn these generic rifle-toting hunters that were in King's novel, those would be replaced by these colorful characters known as stalkers. And each stalker would have his own unique costume, his unique weapon, all really big, tall, bulky, physical types. It would have pro-wrestler braggadocio as well as a, a rabid TV fan base. Now, because moviegoers likely weren't going to buy somebody with Arnold's physique and his confidence to be like this down-and-out, unemployable, everyman loser who needed money desperately, and because volunteering to be on a game show without being desperate, it wasn't going to make sense. I mean, you're putting your life on the line. D'Souza decided to make contestant participation involuntary. The game show's destitute contestants now became condemned criminals who, as in the ancient Roman games, they were put there by the state to fight to the death, and that would be primarily as a means for the government to keep the populace distracted from what was going on, really, in the country. But Richards, to retain his hero status, was not going to be a criminal. He would have to be framed into being a criminal, so he became as a character, a peace officer who defied corrupt orders to attack peaceful protesters and would become the scapegoat by the government when others decided to proceed against this protestation to slaughter. The setting also changed to Los Angeles. It made sense. That's where most network television originates. It also happens to be a very future-forward melting pot city, so it would be very flashy in order to set the film there. So that emphasized a, a racially mixed cast because they envisioned that in the future there would be a lot more diversity in the United States, especially in Los Angeles, and there would be a big divide between the haves and have-nots. So the plot of the film is set in the post-world financial demise of the year 2019. Law enforcement officer here, Ben Richards, he gets framed for the murder of innocent food protesters in Bakersfield, California. And Richards, as well as two of his prison mates, end up getting captured following a jailbreak. And Richards and his cohorts are scapegoated into becoming involuntary contestants on TV's most popular game show, The Government Supported the Running Man, where criminals have to battle for survival while they're being hunted by this rogues gallery of assassins. The show's charismatic but cutthroat host, Damon Killian, he buries the truth, while Richards manages to stay alive far longer than any previous contestant, and he starts to become popular with the ravenous viewing audience, which causes all kinds of problems for the show. 
Once Schwarzenegger did approve D'Souza's script here in all of his new directions, Trimark decided to advance $9 million for distribution rights. That increased the budget to about $17 million at the time. Production was either going to start in April or maybe September of 1986, pending whether they could get a major director to take over the reins. But failing that, they decided instead they were going to opt for a director that would shoot quickly and economically. So they decided to go for promising talent that happened to know how to do a lot with a low budget. Repo Man's director, Alex Cox, he was sought, but he had schedule conflicts with another film he was working on at the time called Walker. So they next decided to pursue German director Carl Schenkel, and that was based on the strength of Schenkel's low-budget 1984 science fiction flick called Obwarts. After about a month, they parted with Schenkel because he seemed to have, even though he was on board initially during the talks, a growing disdain for Hollywood productions. He preferred to keep things very low-key, very weird, very depressing in what the producers called George Orwell's 1984 if it were done in the, in the style of David Lynch. So after Schenkel, they pursued Ferdinand Fairfax. He was attached, and Cohen associate Tim Zinneman came in to assist Linder with the line production because they felt he was could use some help. During storyboarding, Fairfax was fired for steering away from the mass appeal qualities of where the producers wanted to go. He wanted to do a little bit more of what they felt was very alienating to the audience, the scathing political commentary on American excess especially on television, that was bastardizing the world. Fairfax, in fact, wanted a complete rewrite. He wanted the entire movie to be the Running Man game show broadcast, but one with a decidedly British sensibility, one that did not work for the American producers. And the style of the game show was one that was completely reconceptualized because the uncinematic month-long pre-taped 1950s style show from the Bachman book it just was not going to be understood as appealing to current watchers of game shows. So they wanted a futuristic version of a modernized game show. And it had to be specifically something that everybody they felt would naturally want to watch. They would be riveted. So they looked at what game shows were out there that would keep audiences interested. And they specifically keyed on Japanese torture game shows like Endurance and Ultra Quiz, those became the models of what they would do for the Running Man game show. Contestants would endure pain and humiliation here for money, but in this case, for survival. Instead of a shopping mall, which would be very costly to have to rent out, they decided that maybe a, a dilapidated area of town that would be closed off, that would be the setting for the Running Man. It would be set up with remote cameras to record all of the action. The show was really promoted on punishment, but its secret mission was really to keep the populace glued to the screen, pacifying their discontent with a lot of glitz and hype and, and violent confrontations. Now, the effects budget for The Running Man here was still very limited, so a lot of the shots of the city and other things were going to be used using matte paintings. The game show set would occupy two sound stages. They would open them up together to form one huge set for The Running Man show. With Fairfax gone, Schwarzenegger decided to take the reins and push for somebody he thought would be good to take over for The Running Man, Andrew Davis. And that was because Warner Schwarzenegger really liked what Andrew Davis did to draw out a good performance from Chuck Norris in his film Code of Silence. He thought that he could bring that aspect and make him seem very sympathetic. Davis decided to bring in another screenwriter, David Newman, to detangle the wayward script ideas that were there that came into play under Cosmatos and Fairfax. 
uh, D'Souza did come in after Newman's polish and continue working on revisions. Schwarzenegger happened to have a solid rapport with Andrew Davis immediately, but the producers started growing increasingly disenchanted with Davis. After about nine days filming the prison break sequence that was originally scheduled only as a three-day shoot, Davis further began falling behind schedule and over budget with the next sequence, which was going to be set at an ice rink. The producers began feeling like the issue really was Davis was very indecisive. He persistently changed his mind. He went in a lot of different directions of how he wanted to achieve each scene, seemingly in every way except for forward. Davis seemed to be waffling on everything from where the locations were and what costumes they would choose and what decisions David did make seemed very wrong-headed to the producers. For instance, during the ice rink sequence, Davis wanted uh, Schwarzenegger as Richards to pocket this exploding hockey puck, and he felt that that hockey puck could be used in the climax against Richards' enemies in a move that saved himself, but after sacrificing the lives of so many others, where he didn't use it, it would make the character look like a jerk. So the producers said, no, you can't do this. But Davis still, during the shoot, decided to film the pocketing anyway, as if he was going to add it regardless of what the producers said. So at the rate that he was going, the budget was probably going to finish at least $8 million over what they intended. So the producers had to take action, they felt. They took advantage of this upcoming lull in the schedule to make an executive decision. Keith Barish called around. He tried to see if there was going to be any notable director available to immediately take over if they had to get rid of Davis. Michael Mann recommended Paul Michael Glazer. Paul Michael Glazer, if you're a big fan of shows, especially in the 1970s, probably best known as playing Starsky on the TV show Starsky and Hutch. Uh, Glazer also happened to have some directorial experience. He directed for cinema Band of the Hand for Michael Mann after impressing him by directing some early Miami Vice episodes. Now, while Band of the Hand really didn't fare well in the United States, it happened to become a surprise hit in Germany and Japan, primarily because Miami Vice was very popular there too. To increase the funding for The Running Man, they included some investors from other countries, including Germany and Japan, and so they deemed that uh, Paul Michael Glazer was desirable and they should pursue him. Coincidentally, Rob Cohen, who had also directed episodes of Miami Vice at the same time as Glazer, he had previously consulted Glazer as a possibility for directing The Running Man, but at that time, Glazer had turned it down because he felt that at two and a half months, there really wasn't enough prep time. But they still told Glazer's agent, keep him from taking any other jobs because they had him in mind for something big. And Glazer, when, when he was approached this time, he accepted it because the film already happened to be prepped. He didn't have to do any of that prep work in a hurry. And if the film was successful, he would be a hero in the, uh, in the industry. And if it didn't happen to work out, then, well, others like Andrew Davis and, and the producers would probably shoulder the blame. So all of this went on while Schwarzenegger was out in Columbus, Ohio for several days promoting this bodybuilding championship. And they fired Davis, even though Schwarzenegger was very enamored of Davis at the time. So when Schwarzenegger returned, he grew very angry about hearing about this. And he accused the producers of staging a coup simply so that they could direct the film themselves. So Rob Cohen tried to calm down Schwarzenegger. He sat him down to screen Paul Michael Glazer's Miami Vice episode known as Smuggler's Blues to gain his approval. Eventually, he saw that he had enough talent and he begrudgingly gave his consent. 
This howl happened over the weekend, and Glazer was coming in on two days' notice, and his main mission was to come in and complete the film before Schwarzenegger had to leave in order to do publicity for Predator. Glazer, as somebody who was kind of coming in, in the middle of the production, decided he was just going to reactively problem-solve. Every scene that would come to him, he would just try to make decisions as he could. Whatever was in front of him, he didn't have an overall blueprint. He would shoot whatever the producers really wanted him to shoot, simply and inexpensively, if he could. From what he knew of the story concept, he felt like it was kind of a commercial version of Terry Gilliam's Brazil meets 1976's Network. But he advised the crew, don't give him any more details than he needed to make the decisions that he needed to. In the meantime, he was going to concentrate more on trying to draw out Schwarzenegger and his performance. He was going to try to get him to give more humanity, more warmth from his portrayal of Ben Richards than he had done in prior action films where he was concentrating more on his physicality. Schwarzenegger, at this point of his career, really wanted to draw out more humor because he felt that that worked very well for audiences in his most recent films. He wanted more humor in every scene, but Glazer urged restraint. He wanted to avoid the film's tension unraveling and for Schwarzenegger to do a little more to seem more of a three-dimensional person rather than just a quip machine. Shooting for The Running Man at this point mainly took place in the mostly abandoned Kaiser Mill in Fontana, California and the surrounding 1,500 acres of property. That would be used for the prison break sequence that begins the film as well as the uh, the game zone within the city that was kind of dilapidated. Eight weeks were spent there at the Kaiser Mill. They were mostly shooting at night six times a week. The downside to that was the this demolished mill was still polluted. The crew members would spontaneously start getting nosebleeds or headaches from this very toxic environment. The prison break sequence, you know, these prisoners would have these things around their neck that would explode their heads if they went out of the zone. These exploding heads would be, uh, there were a lot of that were actually shot for the prison break sequence, but they decided to remove most of them to avoid an NC-17 rating. They didn't even want to take the chance it was going to get one, so they decided to downplay it. The steel mill shoot, even though it was kind of uh, isolated, they still received visits from police and whatnot because the explosions that they had during their sequences were so loud that people complained from many miles away. Now, for supporting cast, like one of the main uh, stalkers, Schwarzenegger had befriended co-star Jesse Ventura while they were making Predator, and he said that he had a part that was perfect for him, Captain Freedom, kind of like the very popular uh, stalker that was going to be used for kind of more of a, a climax. Paula Abdul came in. She was hired. Uh, she would choreograph some of the Lakers moves. In fact, the uh, Lakerettes, they were the uh, background dancers for the TV show of The Running Man, and she choreographed their dancing here. Primary colors were going to be emphasized here, and that was specifically because D'Souza felt that this whole idea is a comic book, especially The Running Man. And so while they were in The Running Man show, they were just used these uh, primary colors, like you, these four colors that would be used in most of the comic books at the time. In addition to the toxicity of the environments, there were incidents because of the physicality and the, the weapons that they were using. One involved buzzsaw. The, the chain came off of the chainsaw that he was using at one point and ended up injuring several technicians. Buzzsaw was originally supposed to carry two small chainsaws, but Glazer felt that one really large one was going to be much more menacing. Uh, Dynamo, the uh, the opera singing stalker who used electricity to kill his enemies, he ends up getting spared at one point to a chorus of boos 
from the bloodthirsty uh, Running Man audience. But initially, he was actually supposed to accidentally get killed when he, uh, in fright, he pees in his electrical suit when Richards corners him. They ended up uh, nixing that because they thought it made Richards look unsympathetic. But later on in reshoots, they did go back and show Dynamo getting killed during this altercation with Ben Richards' friend and uh, ally, Amber Mendez, played by Maria Conchita Alonso, where the ceiling sprinklers go off while he's wearing the electric suit. Now, the original uh, release date that they had wanted was Memorial Day. They eventually decided to change to a July 1987 release because Trimark sensed, after seeing the dailies, that they had a major hit on their hands and they would pursue this summer release, but it had to get pushed again to November. And that was specifically because Arnold Schwarzenegger, in his contract, it specified that it would not be in theaters at the same time as the run of Predator. So it really had to be pushed to a point where Predator was no longer in theaters. It just so happened that Rambo 3 was slotted for November, and that got delayed again to 1988. So they needed a, a big film to put there, so they put The Running Man in November. Ironically, when it was all said and done, even though they fired some of these seasoned directors like Cosmatos, as well as Andrew Davis because they were increasing the budget. Under Glazer, the film still came in about $17 million over the original $10 million budget. So they so they ended up spending a lot more money than even the, uh, the more seasoned directors were on schedule to spend. The Running Man did experience some post-production difficulties, especially when they got to the editing room. And that was because... The way that Glazer shot the film, which was just reacting on hand, he had all of these revisions, these improvisations that were all put in there. A lot of it was good stuff, and he wanted to put it in there. And his initial cut ran at a lumbering 140 minutes, two hours and 20 minutes, which was about 40 minutes more than they really wanted. Disagreements started erupting among the principal factions, all of these producers, about what the film really should be, which direction it should go and what they should emphasize. So Stephen E. D'Souza was brought in as a consultant to try to maintain a clear narrative as they went through scene by scene to cut out certain things. Most cuts ended up coming out of Richard Dawson's performance. Now, Richard Dawson, when he was acting, he had ad-libbed so much as he went along that his part was greatly expanded from what the original intention was in the script. And his charisma in Glazer's cut was so overpowering and his screen time so much that it ended up looking like he was the star instead of Arnold Schwarzenegger. Richards especially looked weak because he was standing around like a schmuck while Killian was out there running the show. So they decided they needed to greatly scale back Dawson in this film, even though he was one of the main assets to why people enjoy The Running Man. There were also a lot of heated arguments about the film's ending. One faction, specifically Linder, really wanted something that was faithful to King's novel, but others, like Cohen, wanted a happier, romantic, less expensive ending, one that would be an audience pleaser. So they decided to shoot what was the cheapest, which was this final shot showing Ben Richards kissing Amber Mendez. When, when they showed it to preview audiences, the audience gave such high scores to that particular ending, they decided they didn't have to shoot the other ending, the more expensive ending where he goes into the building with an airplane. Now, the test screenings were not always perfect, and some revealed the audience had a lot of confusion about the plot, so they decided to do a lot more in reshoots, especially what happens inside the helicopter between an altercation with Richards as well as the, the people around him. 
Now, the preview audiences were still enthusiastic about the finished product, especially if you were among the demographic of 14 to 40 year olds. But one thing they were not expecting was that the film scored surprisingly well, specifically among women when it was compared to prior Schwarzenegger films. Women were asked what what they liked most about Schwarzenegger's character in this film, and many responded they really enjoyed his cute backside. Schwarzenegger, when he read that, he said he now knew what to showcase more of in his next picture, so you would see his backside for a lot of films after that. When it was finally released, it was the number one film in America for the first month of its release, although it would only end up earning about $38 million in the United States, you know, just barely making its money back, probably losing money, in fact, if you add all of the advertising and other incidentals. It made about $70 million worldwide. The main target here being mindless escapist popular fare, pro wrestling, I think at the time, game shows at the time. But as I mentioned, it's very prescient in predicting the coming of reality show programming that became very pervasive a decade later. It has a very basic formula of survival. You know, the most dangerous game, rollerball, those are definitely something that uh, you could draw parallels to in terms of the plot. But if it were given like a WWE treatment and also similar to how a lot of video games would pit the player up against progressively more difficult and colorful bosses to fight with a variety of cool weaponry. Arnold Schwarzenegger here, he, even though D'Souza ended up scripting the part specifically for Schwarzenegger, he ends up exhibiting still a few moments of stiff acting during dialogue scenes, especially during that helicopter scene reshoot, maybe D'Souza was not involved with that, but he really labors during the uh, dialogue of that scene. Richard Dawson's effective villainy, I think that's one of the main highlights for a lot of people watching The Running Man. He oozes that malice, that humor, the charm, the viciousness all at the same time, the consummate game show host personality here. It's really difficult to imagine anybody else more suited for this particular role. Uh, surprisingly, though, it was Richard Dawson's last big screen performance. He really did not like acting for whatever reason. And just coming back and doing this, he felt like he was done with acting, even though he received a number of accolades for his performance here. Paul Michael Glazer, I think he does give the film some pretty good energy, especially when the action begins. He doesn't really have a trademark sense of style that would separate his work from other 1980s science fiction fare. It's kind of standard in that regard. And even though this film is very futuristic, it's kind of a, a limitation to the budget that makes computer graphics and maybe even Faltermeyer's score keeps the film dated very much in the 1980s. Supporting roles, mostly they're cast for looks more than anything else. Interestingly, initially Schwarzenegger, when he was promoting the film, he seemed very happy that even though this film had a lot of production difficulties, that the result was very classy and very compelling. But over time, I think he started to grow disenchanted with the way that it ended up. It didn't do as well at the box office as he thought. And primarily, Schwarzenegger blames Paul Michael Glazer's uh, hiring. He felt that Glazer shot the film with the mindset of a TV director, and he ignored a lot of what he found appealing about the whole thing, which were the deeper themes. He basically glossed over those for the purpose of just you know keeping the action moving. But, you know, in fairness, Paul Michael Glazer's mid-production hire really didn't allow a lot of time for him to ruminate about all of these underlying themes 
regarding American entertainment and government media control and the devaluation of human life, I mean, this is pretty heady stuff. He really only had time to shoot what he was told before he had to move on and try to complete this film on time and on budget. Schwarzenegger says that if they had gone with Andrew Davis as he had wanted, this probably would have ended up being a $150 million earning picture, even if Davis went over budget. But because they went with uh, Glazer, it was hampered here, and because he was clearly in over his head. As far as what Stephen King thinks about the film, well, he doesn't really think that much about it, because he thinks of it as a, an, an entirely separate entity to what he was doing with his book, because because the only real similarity is the title and premise to what he was trying to do with his book. And he feels that the only thing that actually is above standard fare with The Running Man is Richard Dawson's performance. That's really the only reason why he considers it uh, you know, entertaining at all. In fact, he wouldn't allow, even though they really wanted to, them to use his name as a credit for the uh, the film it's still credited to richard bachman because stephen king didn't want people to think that uh what they were seeing was a stephen king work the running man here you know it's really content to copy a lot of concepts I mean, you can find almost any aspect of this film in prior films or prior books that deal with this futuristic satirical look at violence and government and manipulation of the media and stuff like that it doesn't really dwell too deeply on those things. It's more content to be a, a blackly comic action vehicle made more for smashing heads and kicking butts more so than trying to inspire thought. I think the appeal here mainly will be for Schwarzenegger fans. If you're a big fan of a Schwarzenegger, you probably enjoy this more than most. If you like 1980 sci-fi, I think you'll like a lot of what you see here, even if it kind of glosses over that heady warning of future dystopia, the future dystopia that we may all be living today. So I would say take The Running Man in as just a fun film, and I think that you will find that it's worthwhile time spent. So that's why I will give The Running Man three stars out of four. Three stars on my scale means that I do think it's a worthwhile entertainment for people who like this kind of movie. If you're not a big action vehicle person, you don't like Schwarzenegger for some reason, this is not going to be the movie that turns you around. So now The Running Man still has some cachet today, even though it didn't have a sequel. It didn't really earn enough money to kind of do a sequel. But if you keep up with uh, current trends in entertainment, Edgar Wright has actually publicly announced, at least over the last few years, that he was doing another adaptation of The Running Man. Even though he's a fan of the film, he feels that uh, there was a lot of stuff in Stephen King's original book that makes for even headier entertainment. So he wants to stay a little closer to King's book, even though he does want to make it uh, maybe a little bit more entertaining. So we'll see an adaptation of the Richard Bachman quote-unquote book. Yeah, if, St if Edgar Wright can actually come through, maybe we will see another Running Man in the very near future. If you have your own thoughts on The Running Man that you want to impart to me, you can find my contact information at my website. That's at quipster.net, Q-W-I-P-S-T-E-R.net. Links to my Twitter feed, my Facebook page, and my Instagram are there as well. I do encourage you to email me if you haven't done so already. If you've been a longtime listener, just reach out and say, hey, I enjoy the show, or maybe here's some ideas of movies I would like you to cover in the near future. As far as what I'm going to be covering on the next episode, well, here we covered uh, Carl Weathers' co-star with Predator. Well, let's go for Carl Weathers' co-star in the Rocky films, Sylvester Stallone. He did a film that was released in 1989, in the very last month of the 1980s, in December of 1989, with Kurt Russell in a buddy cop action flick known as Tango and Cash. 
two cops who actually get framed for murder in that film. So that's what we'll be covering on the next episode. If you haven't seen Tango and Cash or if you haven't seen it in a while, well, check it out and you'll be able to enjoy properly, fully, my take when we get to that on next episode. Until then, thank you everyone for listening and joining me as we continue to travel around the world in 80s movies. Oh,